Hello and welcome to this September edition of my book club. This month we did Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational. And at first glance you may be wondering, do we really need a book to tell us how irrational we are? All it takes is a glance outside to see that people are making mistakes and not acting logically all the time. So what does having a book like this tell you about it? Well, I think it's not the second word, irrational, that's important here, but the first word, predictably. And this is the idea that we're not just making mistakes at random. It's not just because we're not smart enough that we're making mistakes. It's because the way our brain is designed leads to systematic errors, meaning that we make the same kinds of mistakes over and over and over again, even when that's not in our best interest. This is a very interesting topic. It's been something that I've been interested in for a very long time. It goes by the names of biases and heuristics when we're talking about psychology. Additionally, it's been applied to a certain subfield of economics called behavioral economics. This is a field essentially started by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, two psychologists that found that contrary to the classical assumptions of economics, the classical assumption is that human beings are rational, that they're trying to maximize their utility and make correct decisions. And even if they make mistakes, they average out in the long run. So if you get 100 people and, you know, 20 of them overspend and 20 of them underspend, well, on average, it works out. Well, in this case, it's not like that because what we found is that maybe 60 or 80 of those people overspend or 60 or 80 of those people underspend. So it's not just that there is an averaging out that when we look at behavior as a whole, most of the time we make the right choice. There's certain situations where most of the time we make the wrong choice or we behave in ways that don't really make sense. And I think there's two real reasons to read a book like this and to research biases and heuristics in this subject. The first is that if we're making systematic mistakes, and that suggests that we might be able to counteract them. If we know that we're going to make a certain type of mistake, well, we could either try to limit its influence in our life directly, or maybe we could control our environment if deliberately restricting ourselves is impossible. The second thing that I think is interesting about this is that if our brain makes a systematic kind of error, that sort of suggests also how the brain is working. So seeing the bugs in the software, so to speak, is really a way of understanding how the software was written and how it works. So really, it's not just that this is some little quirk or defect from perfect rationality, but this is maybe a deeper picture into how our mind actually works. So I want to go over just briefly some of the main biases, some of the main deviations from irrationality that were talked about in the book right now. And then after I'm going to have an extended discussion with that Jaswell, we're going to talk about some of the practical implications of this. So one of the first things discussed is the idea of relativity. This is that we don't make decisions absolutely, but relative to something. This is something you probably have experience with. After all, if you're going to buy a car and someone says, hey, you know what, get leather interiors for another $3,000. Well, if you're spending $30,000, $35,000 on a car, Maybe that doesn't seem like that much. And you're saying to yourself, oh, well, I'll pay for that. But maybe that same person, if they were considering getting a $3,000 leather couch in their house, would be like, oh, that's too expensive. I can't spend that much money on it. Yet it's the same amount of money. And maybe, for all practical purposes, they might spend more time sitting on the couch and the comfort and quality of the couch matters more, perhaps, than having leather interiors in their car. So this is an example where the relative effects of making a big purchase causes us to minimize that $3,000.
but really to our bank account, $3,000 tacked on to a bigger purchase or $3,000 purchased separately are exactly the same. And so this suggests that we will often make these sort of decisions where we're basing a relative assessment rather than absolutely how much is this worth to us. And I think this is important because you can often think of people who are clipping coupons and trying to save money in little, little ways. So they you know, rush to the other end of town to save $10 because they have a coupon, but yet maybe they're losing thousands of dollars on the big purchases. So this is one type of irrationality. Another type that's related to this is that of anchor effects. So the anchor effect is basically, think of a situation where you don't have a really good idea what the correct number should be. So I remember one study, they had people guessing how many countries were in some African League of Nations, some African Union. And they had people go on a spinner and spin it around and it would either pick a low number like 12 or a high number like 60. And then they asked them uh, how many people live or were, how many countries were in this, uh, this union. And what happened was that the random number, which the person knew had nothing to do with the African Union, influenced their subsequent judgment. So if they got a 60 and they were primed with 60, they were more likely to suggest a high number than if they picked a low one. And what's interesting about this is that the person knows that there's no relationship. The per it's not that they were tricked into thinking that this spin something had, had to do with the number of countries. They knew that, but yet they couldn't help it influencing their thoughts. So this is also important because we're constantly searching for cues from the environment of what something should be. And this allows marketers and this allows other people to perhaps manipulate our sense of what is an appropriate number or an appropriate cost of things. Another bias discussed in the book is the cost of free. So classical economic models will say that, well, we should respond equally to an equal change of price. So if, if we, we lower something by, you know, five cents, from 10 cents to 5 cents, or from 5 cents to 0 cents, that should have a similar impact on our propensity to consume it. And what they found is that that's not the case, that when you go from a very, very low cost to free, all of a sudden, we want mo much more of the thing. And this has led to some interesting situations where people will consume something far more than they would otherwise, far more than they actually desire because it is free. And we're susceptible to that this has some negative implications because very often something that is free isn't actually costless. There's opportunity costs, meaning that if we get the free sandwich rather than the one we really want, we can't eat the other thing. It could be that there's hidden costs of standing in line for a while to get something that's free or sending in some mail-in letter. So very often free isn't truly free even though we often respond to it as such. Another bias in the book or a way of thinking that deviates from this perfect rationality is the fact that we have seemingly two separately existing domains of moral norms and behavior. One of those are social norms that deal with our personal relationships where money usually isn't involved and the other economic norms where we deal with strangers and people that we don't have relationships with. And what's interesting is that these norms can conflict and lead to situations that a classical economist, or classical economics would puzzle at. So an example is your mother-in-law may be happy to make you Thanksgiving dinner, but if you offered to pay her $200 for it, she would probably be outraged. And this is because by offering to pay her, even though you, know, you weren't paying her anything before, most people should prefer more money, 
It's changing the domain of the interaction from a social domain to an economic domain where different rules apply. And what's interesting here is that because these domains are separate and have their own existing set of logic, the sort of transition zone between them where you switch from one zone to another can have sometimes irrational effects. One of my favorite studies on this has to do with a daycare center. And the daycare center found that parents were picking up their kids really late. So they decided, you know what, we'll institute a fine that you have to pay $5 if you are late to pick up your kid. And the idea being, well, before it was free, now it costs you money, that should affect your behavior. And what happened instead? More people started picking up late. Why is that? Well, the reason why is that before it was in the social domain where picking up your kid late is rude and you shouldn't do that to other people. But as soon as you attach a price to it, now it becomes a market domain where, well, you're happy to get your kids late because, hey, I'll pay $5 for that and I don't have to feel guilty about it. And what was interesting is that when they tried to switch it back, they got rid of the fine, the previous economic behavior stuck, which shows that once we switch to something thinking of it as an economic domain, we're reluctant to shift it back into the social domain. This has a lot of implications for things like pollution, things like our behavior with our friends and family, and much, much more. Another idea is that we operate better with constraints that, strictly speaking, should make us work worse off. One of the examples discussed in the book has to do with exams. Uh, Dan Ariely had three classes. One of them he gave a writing assignment that had fixed deadlines. The other one, he let the students choose when the deadline would be, and if they were late, they'd have a penalty. And the other one, there's no penalties. You can return them all on the final day, all the writing assignments, and you'll be fine. And what's interesting is, again, from a classical economic perspective, more constraints should make you worse off because there's always a chance that you'll return it late and then you'll be punished. But interestingly enough, the ones with the more, con more rigorous constraints were also more likely to get good marks. So it seems that constraining our behavior in advance can sometimes lead to beneficial outcomes because we're more likely to follow things in the right way. This shouldn't be too surprising. This is something that I've talked about a lot with productivity, saving habits, is behaving somewhat irrationally to get results, but it's nice to see science back this up. Another idea is the endowment effect, basically that we value things that we own more than things that we don't own even if owning it was somewhat random. So the example from the book is that there was a uh, bunch of people trying to attend a sports game and they were all lining up and the people who lined up were basically given the tickets by lottery. Some people got it randomly, some people didn't. And what was interesting is that the people who didn't get it were willing to pay a much smaller amount to obtain the ticket than the people who had acquired it were willing to sell it for. So those who had acquired it were wanting thousands of dollars for the ticket. Those who were willing to buy it wanted hundreds of dollars, despite the fact that who ended up in which group was completely random. So the mere fact of owning the ticket made you value it more. And this is something interesting because very often we get in situations where we become attached to the things we have or the situations we're in in irrational ways so that we're more likely to defend it, more likely to hang on to it. And people can sometimes exploit this often what they'll do is give you something so that you can have it, and then once you have it, you're reluctant to give it back. You're reluctant to give it up. Another irrationality that's discussed in the book is that we try to keep our options open too much. Very often we are afraid of letting an option close even though we're 
wasting time trying to pursue all the paths. So you can often think of this in the person who wants to have triple major because they don't want to shut any doors or the person who, you know, they're dating two people because they're worried that, well, if I break up with one of them, I might make the wrong choice. And the interesting thing about this is that this is often counterproductive because what we need to do is invest in one option and by spreading ourselves over many, many different options, we end up worse off. Another idea that was discussed in the book was the placebo effect. Now we all know the placebo effect is something where if you give people medication or you give people some kind of treatment that doesn't actually work, but they think it might work, then they actually do tend to get better and it impacts things differently. For things like pain and stuff, it can be very, very powerful. For other things, maybe less so. But what's interesting about this is that the placebo effect is also sensitive to price. If you give someone a $10 pill, they will believe that it works better for treating their pain than if they get a 10 cent pill. So this shows us that our ability to perceive how effective things are is often based on price. So if something is really expensive, we perceive it as being better than if we don't. A final one I want to discuss is that of expectations, that when we are in a situation, our own expectations color our eventual experience, even when that doesn't make sense. So one of the examples discussed in the book was of beer. They gave two samples of beer. One of them was normal beer, and one of them had some drops of vinegar in it. And if you didn't tell people that they had the vinegar in it, most people actually picked the one with a little bit of vinegar. They liked the taste. But if you told them that it had vinegar first, people disliked that beer. They said, oh, it isn't very good. I don't like it. So it shows that the idea of knowing that there's something you think will taste bad makes the thing taste bad. And this is, I think, a very interesting effect because it shows that so much of the things we consume from fancy products to fine dining to consumer goods is influenced by our perception prior to the fact of, is this going to be good or not? So this is a lot of ideas to digest. I think the best way is probably read the book. You can get a lot more detail on some of the effects I discussed as well as some other ones that I didn't have time to discuss in this summary. But really, I think the big broad picture of this is to open your mind to the idea that maybe you're making mistakes and maybe you're behaving irrationally in systematic ways. Now I'd like to transition to a conversation I had with that Jaswal about this idea, about some of the ideas in the book, and in particular how they affect us practically. How can you exploit the fact that you're somewhat irrational to make mistakes perhaps a little bit less? So today we're discussing the book with Vat Jaswal. Vat, as probably some of you might remember, he was the guy I did the Year Without English with. So we were traveling for a year learning languages. And I thought it would be interesting because he had also recently read this book to come in and have this discussion with me about Predictably Irrational. So Vat, what did you think of the book? Um, I think the book is really interesting and I would encourage all the listeners to you know, give it a read because it talks about how we're irrational and not just irrational, we're predictably irrational. So we all have some biases towards doing something that we're actually thinking we're doing one thing and then we do something else. So I thought the book was really interesting just from that uh, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, there's sometimes a feeling of, well, isn't that obvious? Isn't it obvious that we're irrational? But I think what uh, Dan Ariely says in the book, which is so interesting to me, is that this predictability of it, the fact that we are systematically making kind of incorrect choices, 
is more than just, you know, that we're not very smart or we can get tricked or that there's this kind of thing, but that there are systematic ways that we make the same mistakes over and over again. And obviously, if there's systematic ways that we make mistakes, there's maybe systematic ways that we can correct for it. That's, uh, that's true. But I also remember reading somewhere in the book where the author was saying that he's also, you know, false for these biases. So I don't know if there is a clear, like, if you know about these biases, you can correct yourself. Um, I think we're all, like, kind of stuck with some things. But it's good to sort of know and then we might be able to mitigate some of that. Yeah, that's actually a really deep question. I know in another book on this topic, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by, um, by a really famous researcher on this uh, topic is very interesting in that regard as well because it's his opinion of it is that these are sort of inescapable, that like these biases we have that maybe if we really train ourselves, we can overcome it in some narrow situation, but then you go to a different situation and they're back again and they're, they're there to afflict us. So I think that is a real interesting point that, you know, maybe these biases are not something that we can escape. And if they can't escape, you know, what do we do about that? Like, is that, is there, is there some way that we can mitigate it by, you know, changing the environment? Because clearly just, all right, I'm not going to be irrational. It doesn't work all the time. I think there are certain things definitely that you can correct in your behavior to sort of um, mitigate these uh, biases, but I don't think they will completely go away. So I think uh, the benefit for all the listeners for reading the book would be becoming aware of how these biases come into play in our daily lives and the decisions that we make and, um, so I, I think um, knowing about it helps a little bit. For sure, for sure. Well, so let's talk about it, just a couple of them, because the book goes over a number of different biases, a number of different ways that we are predictably irrational, as the title of the book suggests. Uh, but let's just talk about a couple of them. So the first one that I want to talk about, which I thought was very interesting, because this is something that you have deliberately designed your environment to kind of try to overcome this is the one on self-control and procrastination. I know this is a topic that's very interesting to a lot of people who are reading my blog because they want to be more productive, they want to get more done, they want to accomplish their goals and issues of self-control, discipline, these kind of things get in the way. And so in this chapter, uh, he talked about how one of the deviations from rationality is that if you give people more constraints in particular, give them ability to sort of hinder their progress, they might actually do better. So the study in this particular chapter, I believe it was chapter seven of the book, was about exams. So I think uh, the, the, the author, he took uh, three different classes and he gave them different conditions for how they could be graded. One of them, he just was a normal class. They gave, he gave them fixed deadlines for when they could uh, do the exam. The other class had papers that they had to write, which they could assign their own deadlines. So they could pick these deadlines in advance. And if they were overdue with their papers handing it in, they would be penalized. So they would get marks taken off for every day that they were late. And then the third one, it was just, you know, you could hand it in anytime you wanted. There was no penalties. You could hand them all in on the last day. And interestingly, the ones that had constraints, even the ones that had these self-imposed constraints did better which really flies in the face of rationality because you'd think that having no penalties would 
make you more pro proficient than having some penalties, but it doesn't turn out to be the case. And so I wanted to talk about this in the context of what you do, because you are somewhat interesting amongst our friends in our friend circle, because you have uh, a lot of self-imposed constraints that a lot of people are like, why are you doing that? But they're really effective. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your own experience with that. Yeah. And uh, just before I uh, talk about my own experience, I remember, um, forget exactly which book I was reading this about, but um, it was a book on psychology and they were saying about putting restrictions. Um, if the restrictions are self-imposed, they are much more effective because you're the one who set the limits. And there's a kind of, you, f you feel more responsible and in control when you set your own restrictions, as opposed to someone else coming in and telling you what to do. So in my um, personal life, for example, for productivity, for um, working, I would use, you know, uh, applications on my computer that uh, block, you know, it starts at, you know, like what I have right now, it starts at 8am and then it ends at five. So I don't, I'm not working all day. And then during that time, all the social media sites and all the sort of sites that you can waste time on YouTube or whatever are all blocked. Now, this is a restriction I've set for myself. And, and the restriction, this happened uh, through observation when I was looking at how I'm wasting time and how much more productive I am when I'm not uh, using those sites. So after implementing this uh, sort of restriction on myself, I find my productivity is, is a lot better. And I've been doing it for a number of years now. So that's one of the ways where, um, you know, we're all irrational. We know we shouldn't be wasting time on uh, if you want to study or work, uh, but we all do that. So there's applications that can help you with that. And I've been using them with, uh, with a lot of success. So what are some of the applications that you've been using? Just because I know some people right now are curious. What are these applications that you're using to be more productive? So um, on Firefox, uh, which is a web browser, I use an application called LeechBlock. And it basically lets you blacklist sites that you wouldn't want to use uh, at a certain time. And it has it's a good add-on because it it's pretty flexible. It also allows you to have it open so you can change it on the fly but i have it on the highest restriction setting basically where i'm completely unable to change while i'm working if i wanted to open one of those sites and it's a very strict um way of doing it but i, I almost feel like if you're not so strict then the, it the whole the whole thing fails so you kind of have to be really strict so leech block is one of them i use uh, and i use a mac computer so I'm using an application called uh, Mac app blocker and basically that blocks uh, the applications themselves so you can you know block your web browser after 11 uh, p.m. I actually have it blocked at 10 uh, 30 and that helps me go to bed on time because then I'm not staying up really late and then as a result I'd wake up late the next day so uh, those are the two main applications that I'm using um, that I can recommend to everybody who's listening. So I remember earlier when you, you know, you didn't use these applications and you often, you know, would say, okay, I'm wasting a lot of time right now. I'd like to be doing X or Y, but instead I'm frittering away my time with other things. And one of the things I thought was interesting is that um, for those of you who are listening here, we, uh, we actually were roommates about maybe four or five years ago. 
And I remember at the time you would like to play, you know, video games. You'd play get your PlayStation 3, I think it was at the time, and you'd play video games. And uh, then we were traveling. You didn't have a TV. You didn't have a game system. And, you know, eventually a little while after you were thinking, maybe I should, maybe I should buy one. I should play one. But you were worried because you remembered, okay, I used to play video games a lot. How do I control this habit? I don't want to get it. And then now I'm just playing video games all the time. And what I thought was really interesting is you kind of hacking together a solution for your television that basically you have, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you have a basically a power bar that has that kind of light timer that like it, it only allows electricity through it for certain time periods of the day. And you can plug it in there so that basically from, I think, uh, I don't know what it exactly is. Maybe I think you said 8 p.m. till about 10.30 p.m. at night. There's electricity to the TV, so you can use the TV to watch TV or play video games. But outside those hours, there's no electricity, so you can't use it. And that you've locked this sort of contraption within a small box so that it's difficult for you to go in there and change it if you decided you wanted to watch TV at a different time. And so I, I thought this was a really innovative solution because it shows that, you know, a lot of people, well, yeah, but I couldn't do this. But if you think about it, there's actually lots of ways that you could um, basically burn your bridges, so to speak. You could force yourself to stick to a particular schedule ahead of time and make it really inconvenient for you to do differently later. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been using this uh, TV system that I've <laughs> sort of devised for about eight months now. And it has been so amazing because also, like I said, um, it works together with the other systems that I have, which is blocking the applications on my computer at 1030. My TV also shuts off at 1030. And it's kind of difficult to sort of get into it. But because I am the one who initiated this restriction on myself, like I mentioned in the beginning, I don't have a problem with it because I have seen what happens if these restrictions are not there. I have also tried systems where it's kind of loose. So you're, the restriction's there, but you can kind of somewhat unlock it. So like, then you're able to watch TV if you really wanted to. And that system also does not work. So you have to be absolutely 100% strict with a system that you're, that you're coming up with. And so the TV thing here, it's actually nearly impossible for me to, to change it. But what's funny is that I've used it for a number of months now. And I never, in the beginning when I started using it, I always thought, oh, maybe, you know, I should remove this. This is stupid. I, I shouldn't be doing this. And then now I never question that. Uh, and I feel like if someone you know, removed the lock from it, I wouldn't even notice it for months because I never think about unlocking it. I just, it's a habitual thing for me now. Okay, time to watch TV. It's only in the evening. And then I'm doing other things in the daytime and never wasting time. And when I do watch TV or play video games, I am never feeling guilty. So I'm really happy with uh, having these self-imposed restrictions, but it's kind of difficult to to uh, explain it to people uh, because I really think it, it has to come from within and you are the person that needs to make the restrictions for yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, I think this is also an example of how, well, you have this bias, um, but also maybe how you can overcome the bias uh, or overcome the irrationality by changing your environment. So on that note, I want to talk about some of the other uh, biases that are talked about. It's not just about procrastination. 
And one of them is about the cost of free. And this was an interesting chapter uh, that we were talking about a little bit before we started the recording in that when something is free, when it goes from being one cent or one dollar to costing nothing, suddenly our brains stop working. We become irrational. We pursue it with a vigor. We decide we want more and more and more of it. And one of the reasons this is irrational is that often we fail to include the other costs involved so that we are you know, more likely to pursue something when it's free, but we don't consider, well, hey, maybe there's opportunity costs or maybe there are other examples of costs. Now, I want to give a little example of something that, uh, that my, my fiance was telling me. She was walking by McDonald's the other day and she saw this line stretching out of the McDonald's and she was like, what's going on here? Like, why is everyone lining up at McDonald's? Well, it turns out that it was free ice cream day at McDonald's and people were giving away this ice cream. So people were lining up around the block. Now, I'm pretty confident that the ice cream at McDonald's maybe costs like a dollar. Like, it's not very expensive. And yet people are waiting in line for 15, 20 minutes. Now, in what world is your time worth so little that a dollar ice cream is worth spending maybe, you know, 20 minutes standing in line at McDonald's to get ice cream that's probably not even that good that you... If someone were to say, hey, you know, this ice cream is now 30 cents, you'd probably be like, oh, that's crazy. I don't want that. You know, like I'd, I'd rather have a nicer ice cream or maybe I don't feel like eating ice cream right but now. But as soon as it's free, you want to you want to get it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. it was a very interesting chapter to read in the book. And uh, this is a bias that we all fall for. I mean, I fall for the free shipping all the time. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what are some free biases that you fall for, Scott? Oh, geez. I think, uh, I think you're absolutely right. Often when something is costs a little bit, you're, you're suddenly more, Ooh, maybe I shouldn't pay for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you, and you're like, mm, I don't know about this, but if it's free, then, then why not? Why not? And I think, uh, sometimes this also comes into play when you are looking at a bigger package. So it's not often just that something is strictly free, like an ice cream or, or in, the, in the chapter, they did a study with, uh, I think it was Hershey's Kisses. But that it's often the case that you can look at something that maybe does have a cost, but there's something free added on to it. And that kind of triggers the same irrationality that fails to have us consider the larger picture. So I think one example of that would be uh, paying for things that will save you time or will save you a lot of effort. Um, I think uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the what the situation was, but there was a situation I believe where I was um, I was using this free solution that was much more inconvenient than just paying a little bit of money to to solve the problem. But it was like, well, but this one is free. But when I look at like, well, actually, it's it's wasting my time doing this free option. I, you know, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And so I think that the, the irrationality here is our failure to consider broader context. And that's not only the associated costs. So if you get like a free bonus with some sort of paid product that you don't want, yeah. then there's an associated cost. Um, sometimes it's the opportunity cost. So lining up for McDonald's and getting that ice cream is an opportunity cost. You could spend that time doing something else. Um, I, I always like to think of uh, 
one of the lessons that really hit me was when I was early on as an entrepreneur was people saying, you have to start pricing your time. And I think there can be drawbacks to this. If you say, well, every hour of my time is worth, you know, $50, for example. Yeah. Uh, there can be drawbacks because sometimes, you know, the amount of value you get for your time is, is lumpy. Like you can do one change in 10 seconds and it'll, you know, maybe make you a few hundred dollars as an entrepreneur, or you can make, you know, spend hours and hours and there's no real obvious return to the time. So it's, it's, it is hard to do that. And I understand that critique, but at the same time, I think pricing your time is important because it automatically makes you consider the cost of these sorts of things. So, you know, running around town to save, five dollars or saving all these coupons to save an extra dollar or so yeah. um, maybe isn't valuable in the long run because you know you're not uh you're not actually saving that much uh that much uh money and the time that you're wasting is perhaps valuable time that's being stolen from you which you know if you compensate yourself properly is uh is actually you're losing money yeah, I have a I have an idea on this where um, this this idea of the opportunity cost, like you could be doing something else, you should always be optimizing for doing, you know, uh, saving the most amount of time and you know using your money efficiently. Uh, but this is a purely logical way of thinking, and we are also emotional creatures. So I'll give an example of something that happened to me recently. Now, um, uh, I parked my car on the street, and <laughs> someone stole in the logo from my car the sort of emblem that's on there uh, someone just uh, ripped it off there and then so I could just uh, buy a new logo and put it on there but um, I like to do sort of creative things if I can so I see an opportunity here oh maybe I could you know design a logo myself so I did a laser cutting logo and then I'm going to put it on there so why I'm telling this story is because where I might have rationalized it my, in my mind saying that uh, the, the reason I'm doing it is because, oh, maybe it's cheaper or I want to do it. But really the reason is that I wanted to do the whole logo design process. I'm emotionally biased to doing that. So when we see coupons and we see other people going, you know, uh, driving 50 miles or whatever, going 30 miles to just use a coupon, we have to also see... Um, are they, w from one perspective, it's really irrational because, you know, it, it, you could have saved time and ordered it online or do, done other things. But looking at it from the emotional perspective, maybe they wanted to go shopping and that was the reason and the rationalization sort of comes after the fact. I, I completely agree. And I think, so this is related to sort of another issue, but I think it's important in this context if we were talking about coupon cutting and uh, one of the, I think, real lessons from this is that if you want to be saving money, like what you care about is that your bank account balance is moving the direction you want to move in, then this research, um, not only this research, but other research talked about in the book, really suggests that what you should be really looking out for are those big purchases. So when you buy a car or you buy a house yeah. or you're renting a new apartment or you're buying a sofa or you're buying something that's, you know, more than your normal purchase, you got to be really watching that. Because if someone says, hey, this is, you know, a $5,000 uh, add-on, 
Well, normally, if you were spending $5,000, that'd be a huge purchase. You, you wouldn't just make that lightly. But maybe you're buying a $30,000 car, so adding another $5,000 by the time, you know, when you add it into the monthly payment or something, it's not that big a deal, right? And so you yeah. make that decision, even if it doesn't add that much value compared to something that you would independently purchase a $5,000. And at the same time, you might be trying to, you know, if something costs... Uh, you know, you're buying some groceries and it costs $10 at one place and $5 in another place. You're like, oh, what a ripoff. I'm not paying $10 for this. But you have to spend a lot of, you have to save a lot of uh, $5 on groceries to save $5,000 on a car. And so this similar situation is coming up where if you are trying to actually worry about the money, if that's what really matters to you, then being selectively frugal or being extremely conscientious on those big purchases is what matters not so much the coupon cutting. However, and you bring up a really good point here when you talk about the emotions of it, maybe what we're doing when we're trying to be frugal is not actually trying to maximize our bank account. Maybe what we're trying to do is create this feeling of frugality, this feeling of that I'm Absolutely. being this smart consumer. And so cutting the coupons, even though it doesn't have that much of an impact, is this creating this identity this feeling that i'm thrifty and i'm smart with my money etc no, being frugal feels good i don't know every time i'm able to save money i kind of feel like oh that was smart of me to be able to save money like that you know so it's an emotional thing and i think that's kind of what we're chasing more than actually saving the money so i think that's an important thing to consider because i think you have to really look at what are your motivations for things are your motivations to get this particular result like you know you're really in debt and you you know if you don't save money you're going to be in a crisis or are you trying to feel a particular type of lifestyle i know this also often happens with health products too where they have like health products that you know they're not actually that healthy for you meaning that they have quite a bit of extra calories but they also kind of taste bad um uh like i i can think of something you know and no offense to anyone who really likes kale but i, I i've seen some kale salads that, you know, kale tastes worse than lettuce. I'm sorry, I'm just saying this. It tastes worse than lettuce. It's like a more plasticky version of lettuce, but it's also super healthy. But there was this kale salad. It was like covered in some kind of dressing. So the calories weren't actually that great. So it's not actually a really good health food, but it's got kale in it. And I just remember it was, they were selling it in some health food kind of uh, environment. And I can just imagine a lot of people buying it. And now maybe it's not that healthy, but it gives you this feeling of asceticism. It gives you this feeling that, oh, I'm, you know, saving myself this, uh, this healthy item. And I think we need to really weigh that into our, our calculation, not just, well, am I trying to lose weight? Am I trying to be objectively healthy? But also, do I get some kind of pleasurable feeling from maybe eating this kale salad because I'm doing something that's, you know, quote unquote, good for myself. So I think that's something that we really need to weigh in and maybe not discount as you're right, that this emotional calculus is important. Yeah, one, um, one last example before we move on to the next section is uh, studying. And I've wasted a lot of time as a student sitting in the library, but not actually studying, but sitting in the library, because sitting in the library gives you the feeling that you're actually studying, um, even if you're not. And so that's another one of those it gives you the emotion, the feeling of studying. But really, if you actually wanted to study, you could study anywhere. You don't need to go to the library. So again, the emotions come into play when we're looking at these biases. 
Absolutely. So on the last uh, bias or uh, irrationality that I want to discuss was um, actually two chapters, one about expectations and one about the placebo. So the expectations is just that our expectations of an event strongly color how we later experience it. So the study they gave there is they gave some free beer and I think one of them was a normal beer. I think it was Budweiser or Sam Adams or something like that. And then the other beer they had added some balsamic vinegar to. And interestingly enough, people often, when they didn't know it had vinegar in it, would pick the vinegar beer. Uh, but if they told them that it had vinegar in it before they got the beer, very often they would sort of, you know, scrunch up their nose and go, like, ooh, this is gross, when they would give it a little try. I want the regular beer. Um, and what was interesting for me is that if you told people after they had already enjoyed the beer, hey, you know, we what we did is we just took some regular beer and add some balsamic vinegar to it, they were much more willing to say, hey, you know what, I, I actually like this. And so it shows that people did like the vinegar beer, but that they were much more skeptical of it and that that later influenced their perception of it. So this I, uh, chapter on expectations is very important. And then that led to another chapter related on the placebo effect, that basically if you give people more expensive, and I'm using quotes here, more expensive treatment, even if it's not effective, they'll believe that it's more effective. And this, I think, goes with this whole idea of our expectations influencing our perceived reality. If we get a more expensive, quote-unquote, pain medication that's really just an inert pill, we believe that it was better and we don't feel as much pain later. So this is a really interesting question, I think, for how do you implement this? Because the other two ideas that we talked about have some kind of obvious well, this is maybe how you could implement this in your real life, but the expectations is really counterintuitive because if we are irrational with the respect that we have certain erroneous expectations and that that actually can have positive effects later, well, what do you do with that? Do you, like, how do you deceive yourself? Should you deceive yourself? Should you deceive other people? Well, what do you think about this? Um, I think we can use the placebo effect to our advantage. Uh, one example I could give from my own life, another one of my <laughs> self-imposed restriction experiments, uh, was uh, I was doing it for about eight months, um, uh, about two years ago, where I decided I have to go to the gym uh, every single day. And uh, it's non-negotiable. But actually, the restriction wasn't that I have to go to the gym and work out. All I have to do is just enter the gym or just touch the front door and then I could leave. And the reason I was doing this is I remember I read another book which was talking about placebo effect. And what it enables you to do is when you even just touch the door and come back, what you're doing is you are starting to think in your own mind, I'm the type of person who goes to the gym every day. And that is really important because over time, even though it's a placebo effect, you may not actually be working out. It helps you to actually become the type of person who goes to the gym every day. So placebo effect is very strong. There is another uh, experiment that um, um, there's many experiments that the author mentions in the book. And I think uh, people should read about that. What's, um, what's one of the placebo effects? Um, Scott, I know you've done a lot of productivity type experiments. So can you list something from your own life? So I think this is really, yeah, I think this is really interesting, this topic, because on the one hand, I'm a sort of, 
I'm a kind of pro-rationality person. I don't like believing in superstitions. I like to know <laughs> yeah. the truth about things. Vats, Vats laughing. He knows this is the case. I am very reluctant to believe things that don't have any evidence or if I've read something that shows that they do have evidence against them. But at the same time, I believe I'm receptive to uh, placebo effects. So one example for me was uh, back in the day, and I, I've written about this on my blog, that I, um, I'd taken a course in speed reading. And I was convinced that this worked, that this speed reading worked. And uh, mm -hmm. I used it and I was, you know, I was reading a lot more books. I was reading them faster, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, I was so impressed with it that I wrote an article about it. Now, flash forward a few years later, and I kind of fallen out a little bit from using some of the speed reading techniques that I had originally learned. And more importantly, I'd started to get these sort of hints that, you know, speed reading doesn't work. So I'd, I'd read like a, on a website somewhere, someone would say, well, speed reading doesn't work according to such and such. So I decided, you know what, I'm actually going to do the research and I do all the research and I find out, guess what, speed reading doesn't work. Well, not that it doesn't work, but it doesn't really work as advertised, that essentially speed reading is a type of skimming, that you can read faster, yes, but also comprehend a lot less. And the whole premise of speed reading was that you could read a lot faster without losing any comprehension, which doesn't really seem to be the case within the bounds that are typically advertised. So now I'm, I, I don't recommend speed reading to people. I don't recommend it as a tactic for that reason. But I think about when I started speed reading and was that some kind of placebo effect? Was the fact that I really believed in it? Um, now, maybe I wasn't actually reading faster in the sense that it wasn't a true placebo effect in that you know, I wasn't actually understanding more than I was, but it did yeah. encourage me to read a lot more. I was reading more books and doing this because I'm, you know, you know, I'm great. I'm doing all this speed reading stuff. And so I think about that with a lot of the productivity techniques that I use as well. How much of those are influenced by my own expectations of them working? Uh, I advertise things like fixed schedule productivity or weekly daily goals or, you know, the Pomodoro technique. And sometimes I wonder how much are those influenced by my own belief that they work so if you know if i tell someone hey use this technique and then they say you know what scott recommended it you know he's a productive guy maybe it'll work for me too that they yeah. convince themselves that it works whereas you know i could have suggested anything and it would have worked so i think this is interesting for sort of two reasons one reason is well that really undermines a lot of your beliefs about things if you think that this placebo effect is real and pervasive how many of the things are you doing that you believe yeah. work don't actually work but then the other part of it is that, well, does that really matter? Like if you're using things and they don't work in the like, you know, double blind, you know, medical evidence-based method, but they do actually have an effect because of your expectations, shouldn't we be exploiting that? Like if we restrict ourselves to only the things that work on this really high evidentiary grounds, are we not robbing ourselves of this potential benefit of the placebo effect? Yeah, I think we can all exploit the placebo effect. We should maybe focus less on that this is some kind of irrationality and more to sort of help bring real change in our lives. I know there are listeners here who would like to make personal change in their own lives, whether it's, um, you know, getting in better shape or, you know, saving more money. Um, we can exploit these uh, placebo effects and uh, you can sort of devise your own experiments to uh, help you get there. So if you currently think you're not the type of person who can save money, uh, basically it, it, the author goes over it in the book where it, your experience is shaped by what you think. 
So if you can get to a point where you actually start believing that, oh, no, I'm really good at saving money, you might actually be really good at saving money. So I, I would say that you, exploiting the placebo effect is uh, one can really use it to their benefit. So I want to just switch with a more thought-provoking topic because we've talked about inflicting, you could say, or benefiting from the placebo effect on ourselves. And I think, you know, as I said, on the one hand, I feel like as a rational person, uh, this shouldn't work, right? If you know you're deceiving yourself, doesn't that undermine it? But yet, it seems to work actually a lot. It seems to work, yeah. To have this ability to have this duality that maybe we know something isn't fully effective, but we still convince ourselves that it sort of works and, and we kind of, we're able to play into this irrationality. But another part of it, and I think this is the more interesting question, is should we be using the placebo effect on others? So I'll give an example. Let's say we have some medical issue, uh, you know, some, some disease that isn't treatable by modern science. There's no known effective therapy for it. Should doctors be prescribing people uh, placebos? If, if the idea that the placebo for whatever effect it is might work. Like let's say it's some chronic pain. There's no known effective treatment for it. Should we be giving people placebos for that? And I want to extend that because maybe you have an answer to that in one way or another because we think of, you know, doctors as being upstanding people. Should marketers sell sham products? So let's say that there's some particular non-medical reason that you would want to have a product that there's no real known way to fix that problem. Should marketers sell products that don't actually work and hype them up as working if it has a placebo effect should the person who sold me the speed reading course have done so given the fact that you know later research showed that the speed reading doesn't work and i don't really have an answer to that question my inclination is to lean against it that i think that you shouldn't do that because i worry about the long-term effects of eroding trust again one of the chapters in this book is about how sham marketers and stuff have eroded our trust and that that has negative effects. So while the placebo effect has kind of a net positive effect from duplicity, dishonesty might have a net negative effect that we're less likely to trust even the true statements that they give us. So I think there's considerable danger in doctors prescribing medicines that don't work because it might undermine our institution of medicine, that belief that doctors give us medicine that works. But at the same time, you, you, you can't help but wonder, uh, is there, is there an appropriate level of, you know, of this sort of helpful line to the benefit of the patient? Yeah, this is, a, this is a kind of sticky, sticky topic because it really depends on what we're trying to achieve. But uh, I'm wondering about the speed reading that you mentioned, the course that you took. If the, let's say the author of the course had told you it only works through placebo effect, would you still would it still have the same effect on you? Well, I don't know. I don't know. And I think, again, this is important for me to mention with speed reading. I don't believe that when you take a speed reading course, you read faster uh, through the placebo effect because when they've done studies on this, so I think it's important to clarify this point, it's not the same as the, uh, the medicine experiment where people do report feeling less pain with a sham uh, medis medical pill, it's not the case that speed readers using an ineffective technique actually read faster because then speed reading would work. The thing is, is that they really do believe that they're reading faster with no comprehension loss, but that they do actually have considerable comprehension loss. So I think that's important yeah. to weigh in there, that it's not the same kind of placebo effect that we're talking about. What I'm talking about with the placebo effect is that the speed reading 
caused me to read more, that I became convinced that this was working. And so I was reading a lot more books and I was excited about reading and it was helping my identity in that way. And that's a really hard question. I don't know if I'd gone back if you had told me, well, this speed reading doesn't actually work, but if you believe in it, you might get excited and read a lot more. I don't Maybe know. speed reading isn't the best example to yeah. pick for this. Let's just say that if I told you, you know, uh, some some trick for going to the gym and you know that it only works because it's a placebo effect, but in the long run, let's say a year from now, it will help you establish some kind of habit. Would you still use the placebo effect to your advantage knowing that it only works through placebo effect? Someone who is really rational person might actually reject it based on, you know, this kind of irrational behavior. So I would, I would absolutely use the placebo effect in this situation if you know, as I said, my worry about it is, is it undermined by your own belief in the placebo effect? But I'm not sure that it is. I think, as I said, the more interesting question for me is, you know, it's, it's fine. It's one thing to use the placebo effect on ourselves. But when we start talking about using it on other people, that, that starts making it, you know, more worrisome for me. So I just want to wrap up. I want to ask that, what do you think your concluding thoughts are on this book? What do you think the implication is for other people? Why should they read it? How can we maybe control the fact that we're predictably irrational? I would say that uh, knowing the biases and how we're irrational is kind of, it's already uh, a win. So uh, anybody who's trying to make a personal change in their life should give this book a read. I would absolutely recommend it. And then every person's situation is different. So they'll they'll feel differently about the book, but there's no doubt that uh, Dan Ariely is a great, uh, great writer and he's conducted amazing experiments. I love the book and it's written in a kind of humorous way. And everybody would find something interesting in there and can use, I mean, in, in a way, this book doesn't actually give you solutions. It doesn't say, well, this is how you beat this bias. But then that's up to you. You can come up with sort of creative solutions to sort of uh, make personal change in your own life. Well, I want to thank that for joining me and discussing this book. It was certainly a lively discussion. I think there's a lot to think about. I really hope you as the reader and listener uh, thought that, you know, the conversation was interesting. As, as always, if you want to join in on our book club, you can join our Facebook group for free and you can discuss the book while we're reading it. Uh, and we will be, you know, each month doing a new book covering this topic and discussing how that book can impact your life. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. No problem. Thanks.